like to thank everyone for joining us uh, for uh, the last, but definitely not the least of the panels of this uh, wonderful today uh, event. Uh, I would like to thank uh, all the panelists for being with us today. I'd like to, to, to say a special thanks, of course, to Knut for being the moderator and to the three members of our steering committee, to Nick Sarkos, Edmund Paulson, and Hadar for, uh, uh, for being part of the steering committee, uh, along with uh, Mike, uh, Michael Parker and uh, Graham Henderson. And of course, I'd like to thank, uh, we have an amazingly powerful group of owners uh, who are going to share their insight uh, on uh, the issue of decarbonization. At the end of the day, whatever we all say, it's up to the ship owners to implement it. Uh, and uh, frankly, I, I was very tempted to add uh, the fleet of everybody and to see how, how much of the global fleet is represented on this uh, panel today. Um, but because frankly, we have decision makers, we have major uh, decision makers with us. Uh, so without any more delay, I will turn it over to Knut. Uh, by the way, um, we have an hour and a half to, to go through. So it's a true uh, roundtable discussion uh, of uh, industry leaders. So Knut, uh, I'm sorry that we have given you the difficult task of moderating such a high power panel. And thank you to everybody for being with us. And uh, with this, I will, uh, I will stop. Thank you very much, Nicholas, for that kind uh, introduction. And, and let me assure you that I feel very privileged to lead such a panel. And um, I, I, you're welcome to gather such panels any day of the week, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, anyways, um, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, for those uh, of you who don't know me, my name is Knut Olbeck Nielsen. I am the CEO of DNV Maritime, and I'm very happy to be your host here today. Now, our, our panel uh, will uh, today lend their collective expertise to the topic of looking ahead, the ship owner's perspective, what does it take to reach zero? And uh, before we get started, let me quickly introduce to you all what I believe is a top class and towering lineup of speakers. So uh, let me first introduce uh, Mr. John Hajipateras. He is the chairman and CEO, president of Dorian LPG. Hi there, John. Good. Nice to meet everybody. Great. And the second is uh, Mr. Mikhail Skov, uh, chief executive officer of uh, Hafnia. Welcome, Mikhail. Thank you. Uh, third is Mr. Esben Paulsen, uh, Executive Chairman of NSL PTE, but also Chairman of the International Chamber uh, of Shipping, ICS. Welcome, Esben. Thank you very much, Nud. Uh, our fourth uh, panelist is uh, Mr. Charles Bird Dar, Executive Vice President, Maritime Policy and Governmental Affairs with the MSC Group. Welcome, Bud. Thank you, it's my pleasure to be here. And um, our fifth uh, panelist is uh, Mr. Eric Hanel, Chief Executive Officer of Stena Bulk. Welcome, Eric. Thank you very much, pleased to be here as well. Great, and uh, 
Of our sixth panelist is Mr. Kenneth Weave, uh, President and Chief Executive Officer of TK Corporation. Welcome, Kenneth. Thank you, Knut, and thanks for having me. And um, last but certainly uh, not least, we have um, Dr. Nicholas Tsakos, Founder and Chief Executive Officer of uh, TEN uh, Limited and uh, who was also the chairman of Intertanko during the period of 2014 to 2018. A warm welcome to you, Nico. Thank you, thank you very much here from Athens. So we were actually spanning, you know, a number of time zones here. We have the early morning starters with Kenneth out of Vancouver and uh, naturally working away through New York, Gothenburg, Monaco, um, Geneva, I presume, Bird, and uh, and finally in uh, Singapore with you, Espen. So it's from early morning until very light. So it's, it's certainly a very interesting uh, setup that we have here now. And um, ladies and gentlemen, we are here uh, to discuss uh, decarbonization. And decarbonization is maybe one of the hardest challenges the industry has ever faced. And the race to zero is ramping up. And while the IMO has mapped out clear targets towards 2050, several actors, stakeholders are beginning to dictate the pace of change. And the pressure, like Nicholas mentioned in the intro, is building on the ship owners to transition faster. And it's coming from all parts of the supply chain, from cargo owners and charters to financiers and the public. And if that wasn't pressure enough, nations and regions across the globe are challenging the ambition of the IMO with their own progressive carbon reduction goals. So um, how are ship owners navigating this complex landscape? And uh, what decisions are they making to ensure future compliance and competitiveness? And what are the costs and the safety implications of decarbonization? So ladies and gentlemen, our panelists will try to unpick some of these uh, questions. So without any further ado and introduction, let us uh, start debating some of these uh, pressing questions. So um, if I could start with you, Espen, uh, with the first question, please. And, and the question is really, in your opinion, what are the biggest obstacles facing shipping in its ambition to decarbonize? And what are the most critical strategic decisions you are having to take to overcome them? Espen, please. Thank you very much, uh, Knut. And uh, I actually, I, I like your, your use of the term race, because I think as, as things have developed uh, in the last, particularly the last couple of years, that's exactly what it is. And that actually is a good thing, because um, if anything, our industry has demonstrated time and again, it is the ability to adapt and to, and to do the right thing and to find the right solution. And you know, I can, we can have umpteen examples. If you just look at 0.5% sulfur in January 20, uh, the doomsday has told us this couldn't be done, but it, it was done. It wasn't entirely trouble-free, but I think it was a, a, a really a success story and, and a just one example. But just to, but before addressing your question specifically, I mean, shipping, merchant shipping consumes about 3 million barrels of bunker fuel a day. 
uh, which is a, is a continuous power demand of about 240 gigawatts. So this was to be plugged in to, without any changes, it would be enough to max out all the power stations in Germany. So this is just a little sort of context uh, of, what we're, of what we're talking about. And probably tomorrow, I'll get an irate call from a, one of the green lobbies to tell me that these statistics are completely wrong. But anyway, I've been given these in good faith and I hope they are correct. But the obstacles, I, I think to me, um, it is the level of research and development and the scale of that is going to be required. That is probably one of our biggest single, uh, biggest single issues we have. And of course, I, because I'm I, ICS, I have to plug our, um, our R&Ds, uh, $5 billion R&D scheme, which we have uh, developed over no less than three years with all our fellow associations and monumental task to get to where it is. It is now the IMO. Uh, it met a, I would say, a so-so response uh, in the first instance, MEPC 75. At MEPC 76 in June, it's coming up again. And we have Japan amongst other major countries uh, supporting us. I'm not for one minute saying that this R&D fund is the answer, but what I am saying is that it is industries a, a demonstrably a demonstrable commitment from industry to do something. And what baffles me, because I'm a, I'm a simplistic person, is why it would be that you take this into the IMO and it somehow or other is met with a, really in many cases, a very tepid response by governments uh, who on the one hand are very ready to criticize us, but when we then come with concrete self-made proposals based on the undertakings we made in April of 2018 for, for a, um, a, you know, the, the Paris Agreement for shipping, um, this is the response we get. So that I have to say, and I said it many times before, is disheartening. The other thing is that, is that we have to, we have to do better at talking to governments and explaining what it is we're doing, because very often we're talking to people who don't know our industry well. And you know, we keep being told how terrible we are promoting our industry. I would say we're doing better than we were, but we undoubtedly have a long way to go. I think also there is a need for huge infrastructure, um, a support system to to service these new technologies that I'm very sure we, we, we will get to. But the problem is that when we, again, when we engage with governments in the, these, uh, on these issues, we get very, very mixed messages in return. I think also, um, if you, I, I mean, if you look at the, the scale of the power of the industry, that, that we, the scale of production that we're going to need, we worked out that, for example, if the entire fleet of the world were to go on to ammonia, you're talking 440 million tons, which is more than triple the current output. And this would mean the shipping alone would consume more than 60% of the world's current renewable energy production. So I think, um, I think these are really the, the to me, the, the key points. Um, there are of course many, many other aspects to this, but I will, I think, just finish my remarks by again saying that if there's any industry that can do this, I believe it's ours. And I think we've shown it time and time again. And as I said to somebody yesterday, if you look at the vaccine, who would have thought a year ago that we would have three or four viable vaccines within 12 months or just past 12 months? 
I don't think many people believe that, but it is again an example of the power of industry. Let industry, let business do it. Don't let governments do it. But please, can we have the governments listen to us and understand what it is we're trying to do? Thank you. So very clear messages there, Espen, and thank you for those uh, insights. Um, you mentioned R&D infrastructure and the dialogue and engagement uh, with governments uh, as some of the, the key points. If I could turn to you now, uh, Nico, and um, ask you if you, you have any additional perspectives or would like to reinforce anything that uh, Espen mentioned, please, um, please go ahead. Thank you, thank you very much. Well, uh, first of all, it's good to see that uh, all of us are coming uh, back together in one form or, or another after uh, a very very strange and long year, and uh, all looking in, in good form. And hopefully, the at some stage, the, the, the tanker market can can start reminiscing uh, uh, the good form that we'll look into. Uh, it, it has been uh, a very, as I said, uh, it, it has been a very uh, strange year and we started the 2020 uh, focusing on uh, the IMO uh, new fuel uh, regulations and uh, we got sidetracked and spent more time dealing with the safety, mental and physical of our crews the remaining of the year, uh, all of us, and I think uh, we have all tried to make the best and uh, we have to congratulate also people in, in the offices and in the ships for being able to keep the world moving uh, as they have uh, today. But in the meantime, things are progressing and are progressing fast, uh, as you said. Uh, we are all uh, still very intrigued uh, that the, we are still in the process of uh, digesting the effects of uh, the changes into the sulfur content of, uh, of our bunkering uh, for our vessels. And I think uh, s some of those teething problems have, uh, have uh, worked within well within the year. Uh, in our case, we had uh, to, and I'm sure in, in the whole industry case, you know, a lot of uh, times uh, the uh, the, the cocktails and the mix that we were provided were not uh, really appropriate for the quality, the technical quality and the safety of, of our vessels. So we had to go through a few debunkering operations that for all of us, they know it's not the, uh, it's not the easy, it's, it, it sounds much easier than it actually is. In, in today's uh, uh, limited a world uh, with uh, with COVID restrictions all over, all over the place on ship calls and, uh, and uh, maritime calls. Um, as far as uh, as the new technology, we are uh, we are looking together with uh, I would say our clients, the end users, that uh, should guide us to which should be the next uh, the next uh, te technology or the next uh, suitable uh, fuels. There is a danger here if the industry or anybody jumps the gun uh, too early uh, to have uh, the early start instead of an advantage, a disadvantage. And I think this is something we will all have to, to, to protect ourselves uh, from. In the meantime, 
the shipping industry and specifically the tanker industry has always been at the uh, forefront of change, of, uh, of doing things uh, that are positive for the environment. And let's not, uh, for those of us old enough, we should not forget the change of the single, single design to the double, double design, which actually happened uh, in a very efficient manner. Uh, and it has provided huge uh, safety and it has kept us a, a lot of uh, a lot of troubles and pollution uh, since, since that technology. So we are open in changes, uh, but we need uh, to make sure that uh, the decisions that we make going forward are not uh, experimental. And so we will, so we will not end up like the like uh, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which you know we will we'll follow it and then we will have to 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 call it back. So. Uh, but we keep our eyes, uh, our eyes and antennas open uh, to, to the changes and we will follow. Thank you, Nico. And uh, also thank you for mentioning um, the seafarers. Um, and I think that's, that's very good of you for many reasons, but not least that we keep it on the agenda as the, the plight of the seafarers um, is certainly not over yet. So, but um, looking, um, you know, at what Espen said and what you said, uh, I mean, uh, Espen very optimistic that we will be able to deal with this uh, and you also stating that we're open for change in, in the shipping industry and that we've proven that before. I would like to come to you now, uh, John, um, and, and try to seek out your perspectives on this uh, question, please. I cannot hear you, John, for some reason. I was I had a secret mute button. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I want, I want to acknowledge what Nicholas said. I think it would be remiss not to reinforce what he said about our uh, the people that work on the ships and and um, and um, ashore and um, and how we would all not be here if our propellers were not turning and they wouldn't be turning if it weren't for the people that um, work on the ships especially and and the support they get from the offices but i think you can you can um i bring into my uh, answer to the original question the biggest um obstacle in my opinion is the uncertainty around many aspects of what we're doing and the uncertainty um particularly around regulation i think is a huge obstacle number one and 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 then technology number two I think the, the technology, the force of the markets, industry, and all this will, is going to catch up quite quickly. But, but if we have moving targets and we have lack of coordination as to the ultimate objectives here, um, that is, to, to me, the biggest uncertainty. And, and I think you can illustrate that in, in, by the vaccine example and the seafarers. Yes, the industry got a vac three vaccines out there, no, we haven't been able to provide priority to seafarers, not even right of passage, not even, let alone the priority to get vaccinated, but not even. So here, I mean, we need to have ships stuck in the Suez Canal before people remember that shipping is, is, has some kind of um, uh, contribution to the world economy. And suddenly everybody's afraid that the, 
that the um, you know we're going to have an economic uh, debacle if uh, if the ship remains there an extra week, etc. So that addresses the the um, the uh, messaging again. We have we've had this problem of messaging ever since I can remember from being on Intertanko in the early days when it was you know the people that were probably dead before some of you were even born. <laughs> Uh, but but um, who 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 were um, Erling Ness and all that, so so we've had a problem of of, of that. So that, but I'm optimistic in the sense that there is a a um, momentum for um, addressing the environmental issues, and if we can if we can make sure that we can harness this and put it into a funnel it properly in my opinion through the imo but it may not be that you know it may be a combination but in my opinion this, this ultimate should be we should funnel everything through the imo i'm very optimistic that we we're going to come out with with um a, a good result both in terms of um, decarbonization and i think equally importantly in terms of general environmental awareness because let, we keep forgetting that the sea the element on which we rely to do all this is totally polluted uh, not just with with waste that we create or that comes down from the sky or whatever but with waste from the from the land based pollution and 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 overfishing and all the and 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 rubbish you know we should i don't think it, it's right we should forget that in this it's part of the whole equation so, um, uh, and what we have done, frankly, it's to us, it's a little easier because if we, um, uh, if and when we are renewing tonnage, we, because we carry LPG, we will use LPG as a dual fuel. It is a very good, trans at least as a transition fuel. And the ultimate solutions, of course, will be related to hydrogen, ammonia, biodiesel, um, and, and in my opinion, uh, the silver bullet, which will have to be part of the whole equation, nuclear. And, and with that, I'll leave it because I know that not everybody agrees, particularly with the last point. We can discuss it later. Some great insights, John. And we will indeed come back to, to the atomic question a little bit later on. Um, and um, you said that uh, funnel everything through the IMO. I, I picked up on that, and and I think that's a really good and valid point. And also the environmental awareness, and that really leads me into the next question. And I would like to go with you um, first, Kenneth. And um, we can say that leaders from an array of industries, including shipping, are engaged in ongoing debates surrounding the ESG, the environmental, social and governance factors. And how important is it for ship owners to demonstrate transparency and progress with environmental concerns and in particular with the decarbonization? And practically speaking, how do you do this? Kenneth, please. Yeah, thanks, Knut. Thanks for, for that uh, pretty straightforward question here. It's, uh, there's a lot that goes into it, right? Uh, first of all, I want to say that I think transparency has always been important to building a marine, a successful marine shipping uh, business. 
our founder, he, he certainly knew it uh, almost 50 years ago. He, Torben Carlsen, uh, really just built TK on a commitment to provide customers a higher level of, of service and, and quality in tank operations. And, and then the recipe was, was simply to, to deliver on that. So uh, trust is, is, of course, built on, on transparency. And it's really important for us uh, to be trustworthy and credible so that when we do make commitments, uh, we know we can achieve them and we know how to achieve them. Uh, the importance of, of, of trust and, and, and transparency has never really changed. But what is changing is, of course, the, the range of stakeholders that, uh, that we're accountable to and the types of issues that we are accountable for. Uh, so delivering a safe, uh, reliable and cost-effective marine transportation service has been the maritime industry's essential contribution to, to global trade really over, over the years. Uh, however, to remain relevant, the, the shipping industry must continue to, to serve growing transportation needs while we're also addressing a broader range of, of ESG expectations. And, and key among those is, is finding new cost-effective solutions to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, ship owners are under pressure, of course, to demonstrate how we'll reduce uh, GHG emissions in, in, in line with global goals, such as the, the Paris Agreement, and uh, the stakeholders we depend upon, such as, as our customers, lenders, and insurers are under an equal amount of pressure to work with ship owners whose commitments and strategies are aligned with these goals. So therefore, we, we believe that having in place a strong and credible ESG strategy is becoming a, a, a differentiator in our space that can positively affect our ongoing access to both capital, talent, uh, but also business opportunities, as I know has been talked about on, on the panels previously over the last two days. Uh, conversely, companies that don't have a credible commitment to meet uh, near and longer term ESG targets, including uh, decarbonization, will, will just face negative impacts in, in terms of their cost of capital and, and support from, from customers and, and, and all stakeholders. And I think we're all experiencing uh, that rhetoric when, uh, when we meet with, with stakeholders, uh, certainly over the past, past year here. So the question is really, uh, how do you create trust on, on ESG? Uh, ultimately, that is, will of course be decided by, by our stakeholders, but I'd like to share just four things that, that, uh, which are just very practical things we've done at, at TK over uh, this past, year's, uh, past year. Um, first, we, we, we engaged uh, with our stakeholders um, in actually end of, of, of 2019, supported by, by you at DNV to understand the ESG uh, issues that, that matters most to them. Uh, addressing climate change is, is, of course, very important, but it's not the only issue that, that matters to, to our stakeholders. Um, so therefore, this past year, we also uh, surveyed all our staff um, on the ESG matters issues that, that matter most to them. And we received more than 1,400 responses. So this really enabled us to, to better prioritize our ESG strategy and focus. But it was also a great way just to drive alignment uh, throughout our organization on, on this. Secondly, uh, across the TK group, we, we strengthened our, our ESG uh, commitments. And one of the ways we did that was by, by joining the United Nations Global Compact and committing to uphold its principles related to human rights, environment, and anti-corruption. 
this was a, actually a pretty easy decision for our group since the principles were already embedded into our values and policies. And by joining, uh, we simply aligned our commitments with many of our largest customers who are also UNTC signatories. Thirdly, over the years, we, we've continued to our efforts to uh, transparently report our ESG performance and to align uh, our reporting with, with recognized standards. And I know, I think everybody on this panel is, is, is doing the same. Earlier this week, uh, we, uh, the TK Group, released uh, our 11th annual sustainability report, which is uh, this time around uh, aligned more around the GRI and SASP standards. So that's been a continuation of, of how we actually report on our numbers. And we're committed to, to further improving, of course, as we as we see the standards uh, and expectations changing uh, around this uh, for, for our industry also. And lastly, we uh, we spent a lot of time uh, this past year working with our boards to ensure strong oversight and governance uh, of our ESG strategy and performance. And each of our boards are involved and are monitoring our performance. Uh, and this past year, we updated our even our corporate uh, guidelines to clarify and strengthen board oversight. So you can say that's really the infrastructure we, we, we put in place as a foundation. Sustainability has, has uh, always been a core value at, at TK and our ESG journey is, is ongoing. There's a lot of ongoing work to do, certainly at TK and, and uh, definitely across the maritime industry to continue to meet the, the expectations of our stakeholders and society at large. But I believe it starts uh, with, with having a strong and organization-wide embraced culture, values, and pol policies, which is a pre prerequisite for the work uh, that really lies ahead of us. And I think it's clear that uh, there are no easy victories here, uh, but many years of systematic work that's, that's really ahead of, of all of us. Um, so that's, 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 that's a, a bit of a foundational introduction on, on this discussion. Thank you, Kenneth, for sharing um, uh, with us and also the, the very concrete steps that you have taken at uh, TK. May I turn to you now, uh, Bird, and uh, it could be interesting to to hear from, from MSC side what you are doing and uh, how you see it from sort of the your perspective, please. Well, thank you, Newt. And I have to say uh, a lot of what I was planning to say um, kind of covered quite well, and I, I don't want to be overly redundant with it, but we have also found things such as the Global Compact and enhancing our sustainability reporting in a, in a public way um, every year to make it more transparent, um, more definitive, more quantitative, less qualitative. Um, it's a work in progress. I think it's one of those things where you can't think, aha, I'm done, I'm good enough. You have to just keep getting better and better at it all the time. And I think that's the expectation of the range of stakeholders we've got out there, which include governments, it includes NGOs, it includes for sure our customers, uh, which by the way, in our businesses, in, in very different flavors, we have customers that are one-on-one -on -one in the cruise business and customers that are say large scale shippers in the cargo business. And um, we, we find different reactions from both of them, but we have to meet their interests as well. I'm definitely finding that lenders are becoming more and more interested in this because they have their own transparency requirements. So the better job that we can do and the better job we can do of explaining what we're doing, the easier we make it on the other stakeholders um, to see us fitting into their longer term plan. So at our company, uh, in, in addition to reporting, um, we've tried to engage a little bit more and sometimes privately, sometimes more 
publicly in our community like this and explain what it is we're, we're, we're up to um, as far as improving that year on year. I also think that Kenneth hit on something really important and that is the internal stakeholders. Uh, here within the company, particularly if you think about not maybe people of our generation, but the people that are coming up to replace us, these are extremely important principles to them. And what we found is we've started to be more and more open and communicate internally around it. We get some of the strongest positive responses from our own employees. They really feel a sense of pride in that and they really wanna know what it is that we're doing to be responsible in, in our business operations. Thank you. Great insights, uh, but thank you very much. Um, let's uh, hear uh, from you, Eric, if, if you have a sort of additional perspectives of views or if you're more or less in, in line with uh, Kenneth and, and Bud on this um, question, please. No, I, I, I definitely feel very much in line with them. And, and uh, I, I think it's more or less pointed out that uh, transparency is not, uh, not, not really an option today. I mean, you have to be there, otherwise it will be irrelevant pretty fast here. Uh, and and for, for the industry itself, uh, I think it's extremely important to be transparent uh, since we a little bit uh, repeating here, but, but uh, both to, if, we, if we're going to achieve something, we need to do it uh, together with the regulatories like uh, EU, IMO and, and uh, well, the rest of the global, global regulators uh, and, and not, you know, be, so we come into a situation where we start up doing too much of the, the regional, uh, regional uh, decision make. Uh, so so uh, I, th I think uh, to be able to, to really be transparent here and work with, with, uh, with the authorities, uh, you know, that's a way for us to be a little bit ahead of the game and not like decision makers uh, uh, not having enough with the information from the industry and take decisions that we really don't want, which has, even if we have been very good in the past to, to, to take care of the decision making, it might necessarily not have been exactly what the industry like to do if we would uh, look at it in, in the mirror. So that's the input I have. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. So one of the challenges with a, with a big panel like this is to get uh, everyone involved. And uh, I haven't uh, forgotten uh, you, Mikael. I will come back to you in, in, a, in a short uh, minute or, or two. But let me uh, take the next question again to you, Bud. And, uh, um, and we are now focusing in on, on the new building strategy. And, and which uh, considerations have the most influence on your new build strategy and choice of fuel and to what extent have your stakeholders ambitions uh, impacted your own business decisions so please if i could hear uh, your views on that but please well thank you newton have fun to be able to come back so soon again for another question this is uh, a, a great topic but it's not an easy one to answer because it's not one size fits all uh, in the cargo side of our business uh, others out there in our space tend to talk about prospectively our new building program much more than we do. Uh, we tend not to comment on it anywhere near as much as some other third parties do. On the cruise side of our business, we are you know, very open and talk about it many years in advance. So it's a little different depending on, on which part of the business that we're talking about. But the bottom line is that the ambitions of our stakeholders, we hear, we hear loud and clear. We wanna meet those as well as our own needs because there will come a point, um, and I, I think some others have alluded to it, where this is simply just part of a basic social license to operate, where if you haven't met a certain baseline of performance, you're just really 
not going to be in the serious realm of, of this business that we're all in and, and we all love so much. Um, but beyond that, the limitations we face today are really substantial when you're thinking about a, an asset that maybe you know, 20, 30 years, or in the case of a cruise ship, maybe 30 or 40 years or more, because what you have available today at scale is basically energy efficiency, biofuels, or LNG. There are other things that are emerging. There's no doubt there will be more choices in the future, but let's face it, today it's scale. That's what you've got. We have worked on all three of those for now. We, we bunkered 850,000 metric tons or so of, of second generation sustainable biofuels up to 45% blend last year. We're comfortable with that. Uh, we can make that work in the longer term if the scale is there and the, and the pricing um, is realistic and competitive with the other options. Uh, when it comes to LNG, we've, we've invested uh, so far 3 billion euro in the cruise side of our business with options for more ships uh, as well. And we have designed flexibility into many of our cargo ships that we're in the process of taking delivery of uh, to be LNG ready should we find that to be a good transition. And let me point out, if you have a dual fuel ship, that is able to operate on either conventional fuels or LNG, you actually do have flexibility for the future. And I think flexibility is one of the things we really have to be thinking of because you could migrate very easily as we found in our experience to a biofuel if you've got it available at scale um, with, with the conventional fuel tanks and systems. If you're capable of operating on LNG, you can migrate to biomethane or synthetic uh, methane you know, in the liquefied form, if it becomes available at scale. And then you may also have a, me a methanol conversion option for the future. I think that probably is more feasible than, than most of these other advanced fuels should green methanol be available at scale as well. But energy efficiency is one thing I wanna point out for a moment because it's not just today, it's the future. Because I think it's actually gonna play a bigger role going forward because the challenges we have with all of these options, we very much have an open mind on the options is that there's a volumetric density issue you've got to overcome. And so not only is there the price differential, which at least in the short to midterm will be very substantial for things like green hydrogen or green ammonia or uh, e-methanol or synthetic LNG, um, but you've got to find space to put it all on the ship. And so, if we can maintain the same level of autonomy and service by actually carrying smaller volumes, we actually make those solutions more feasible from a technical standpoint, particularly if you're talking about hydrogen, where you might have four times the volumetric requirement of a standard fuel. So all of those things are going into our thinking for today, but energy efficiency in particular, and all the things we can invest in today, both for technology on the ships we're using right now, are going to use soon, but can also be used for the future. Could be really good investments as these alternatives become more feasible. But the number one thing I'll say in the short term to try and find that balance is looking for how can you build in the most flexibility as possible? Because there's, in my opinion, not gonna be one clear single winner. It's going to take a variety of solutions to form a solution set to satisfy either a diverse fleet like we have or satisfy the entire industry's needs because there are so many individual factors that go into which fuel may be suitable for which ship. And one last thing I'll say is, I think the technology side is progressing faster than the fuel side because there are ship types you could build today that in theory could use a fuel and be 
you know, net zero carbon, but that fuel's got to exist. And I think the long pole in the tent here really will be development of those fuels, getting them through the midstream and actually to the ships where we need them. And we have to go out there and compete for that because many of the good solutions for energy that we need are going to be good solutions for other applications in society too. We need to be sending that demand signal now that we're going to be ready. Thank you, but that's really um, great insights and uh, flexibility. You said uh, fuel efficiency, uh, but not least also that uh, shipping needs to compete for some of these uh, most attractive fuels with other industries as some key takeaways. Now, if I could turn to you, Espen, and um, maybe not in your role as the, the chairman of ICS, but maybe in your role as, uh, as the boss of NSL uh, PTE in Singapore. And uh, what's your views uh, on this? Uh, issues, please. Well, it, it uh, as someone, a uh, very well-known ship owner said not very long ago, it takes a brand, brave man to order, a brave person, sorry, to order a new building today. Um, that, of course, there is some truth in that because as Bud has so very eloquently outlined, there are a tremendous number of, of, of challenges. I do agree with him that technology uh, does seem to be going at a faster pace than the development of, of the fuels. But if I could just go back to, to um, the obstacle question, because that, in a way, is part and parcel of this. I just like to say I agree very much with John that you know uncertainty is probably the biggest single challenge that we have. There, there is tremendous amount of uncertainty and which way you're going to go. And he also, I think, very eloquently uh, mentioned the question of coordination, where Again, the research going on at whatever level and, and through whichever institution, the more that can be coordinated and, and, and reducing the tremendous amount of potential duplication, uh, the better. And it's something that I would love to, to see happening. He also said that, that momentum is there, and I very much agree with that. There is a momentum. There's just no doubt about that. But on this specific question, I, I, I think that... Um, in our group, I would I would imagine if we are going to order a new building today, it probably would be a dual fuel with with the um, uh, possibility or the built-in flexibility to to switch to a um, a, a future fuel um, when the quantity of that is, is available, um, you know, on on the on the right basis. Thank you very much, Espent. And um, again, Mikael, uh, you have been waiting so patiently and uh, I'm keen to bring you into the discussion and I apologize again for the long wait. So please go ahead and, and share your uh, inputs and views, please. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And I think the, I can't say I disagree too much with, with the introduction here. I mean, I think the key is also, as far as we are concerned, flexibility. And, and when we look at new builds today, I guess there's kind of two or three things that, uh, that are important criteria. One is definitely the fact that, that the only new builds that we have looked at and ordered are based on dual fuel. Uh, and that's really also meant as uh, obviously vessels that can sail on what's available today, but also with smaller modifications going forward, uh, we'll be able to sail on, on, on any future uh, renewable fuel that we may come up with, say ammonia as, as one example that, that we all discussed. So I think the flexibility part, I totally agree with. And the fact of being a first mover in something which is an, an uncertain environment, you know, is, is probably not a recommendable strategy uh, at the moment. Uh, 
if we then look at the diversification between the ships, there's also another item to take into account, and that is, as you move down in size, uh, for instance, say on uh, on smaller ships, it gets slightly more complex. Uh, when we look at at the trading pattern of say medium-sized product tankers, it's a very global business uh, in the spot market. So the challenge today about ordering new builds with a dual fuel engine is that first you have to pay 25% additional capex on top of a traditional uh, design price. But the problem is you won't be able to use that flexibility upfront because uh, if you are a so-called tramp shipping, uh, spot trading vessel, you can't be sure of availability as, the, as things look today. So uh, we've decided down the strategy of new built, dual fuel, but with secured earnings for at least a prolonged period of time, awaiting the infrastructure to develop even for alternatives as uh, what we're seeing today in terms of LNG and methanol to be sufficiently spread out even for smaller ships. So I think this is yeah, and this is one of the key strategies on it. Um, I think to your question on stakeholders uh, and a little bit about the pressure around that, I think it's pretty clear, as already mentioned, that we're all seeing uh, pressure, if you like, and push from particularly the capital markets. Uh, and there's no doubt that when it comes to sourcing, debt equity, et cetera, if you cannot show progress, if you cannot show transparency as a business, uh, you will definitely be finding it very difficult and it will hurt your bottom line in terms of higher cost. We're seeing it from the client side as well. So I think it all plays into you know, being very much aware of whatever decisions you make these days is for sure the pressure goes in one direction, but I still think that the, the, you know, the uncertainty requires flexibility. So maybe one more thing to add at the end in terms of stakeholders that hasn't really been mentioned is... Um, we also think you need to very much be aware that uh, shipping is a very people intense business. Shipping is very much about having the right people hired. It's very much about having quality and access to a talent pool of smart people. And I think that stakeholder pressure, if you like, of being able to attract the smartest people around to our industry, to our businesses, very much requires as well that when we talk about strategies going forward that we can show that whether you do investments in new build or whatever forward business decisions you make has to show that you're on the right path. Because if you don't, I sincerely doubt that you're going to be able to attract all the talent that we do need to consistently develop our business in the right direction. So that was kind of my add on to it. Very well said and uh, interesting with your perspective on attracting talent as well. Um, I would like to stay a, a little bit longer on the fuel um, question and uh, if I could go to you, uh, Nico, for, for this, uh, this one, please. So uh, several different carbon uh, fuel or zero carbon fuel options are being touted as fuels of the future, if you like. And, and which fuels do you anticipate propelling your fleet to reach zero CO2 emissions? And by when will this happen? And how are you preparing for this transition? I know that's not an easy question, Nico, but I, I would like you to have a go at it, please. Okay, thank you. And I think it, uh, it, it, so far, it seems that we are all uh, literally in the same boat, uh, facing exactly this, the, the, the same issues. And uh, we, we are looking at, with an open mind, uh, 
uh, at this. Uh, our company and uh, we, we operate a fleet of uh, about 100 uh, vessels, of which 80 are tankers. Uh, so we are uh, focusing a lot on uh, our relationships with the oil companies, uh, the major oil companies, and the the traders, but uh, I would say that uh, we are in discussions uh, for the future with our clients, uh, and, uh, and I'm sure many of, of you are there, uh, to, to come up with what would be the next 20 years uh, uh, answer for in this question. As we speak today, uh, I think we are all uh, looking at uh, options with existing fuels. Uh, again, I believe that this dilemma should not have been the ship owners dilemma. I think ship owners have a lot to do in uh, running a safe ship, uh, keeping uh, our crew well trained and, uh, uh, and up to date with all the regulations. So I was hoping that this would not come again down to be a ship owner's decision a ship owner's dilemma, but uh, the refineries and the oil companies would, uh, would, would bring a solution that will be worldwide accepted because we are right now uh, you know, in, in a situation that we have uh, a lot of various alternatives, theoretical alternatives in the air. The only alternatives that could work today uh, is uh, as an intermediate perhaps step, uh, the dual fuel engines, or uh, you, know, you could have, a, perhaps we are looking on a dual fuel engine of LNG uh, that could uh, burn ammonia uh, going forward. Hydrogen is uh, in the back of everybody's mind, but it's uh, much more as an abstract, <laughs> You know, it, it, I would say it's, it's the fashionable word for everybody to, to right now to mention, but without really having down, come down to how, not only how is it going to be burned by engines, but how it's going to be provided to us. And, uh, you know, I said that Mr. Hatsipatelas, uh, uh, with his uh, LPGs, he has a uh, uh, LPG to burn, and we with our LNGs, we have uh, LNG to burn. So I mean that that are natural uh, ways going forward, but we are uh, still uh, a long way from uh, coming to uh, you know a permanent uh, de decision uh, as we speak. So as I said, I don't want this to be uh, a ship owner's uh, decision or dilemma. I want this to be provided by the energy companies that actually make their living. I mean, we make our living for transporting energy and other goods. Uh, I mean, this should come down to the R&D departments of the engine makers and uh, of, of, of the oil companies that are going to be actually making uh, the lion's share of profit of whatever uh, the new uh, power is going to be. And uh, I mean, I know that hydrogen is the current uh, hip word to use uh, energy, but uh, I started hearing uh, 
following uh, the seminar here that uh, atomic power is the next one we will be discussing. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's you know, sky is the limit, it seems. Thank you. Thank you, Nico. And um, it's a great point that you have that it's not left to the ship owners alone alone to solve these uh, challenging issues and also that we need to have something that is more than theoretical options. Um, if I could turn to you, Eric, and, and have your views uh, on this, please, and, um, and, and maybe put some timelines uh, if you're able to, please. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, of course, this, this is the billion dollar question, at least, uh, I would say. And, and uh, uh, I mean, what, what we see today is, of course, uh, as already been mentioned, we have, we have several different, uh, different uh, ways ahead there. And, and I think it's, it is very important for, for the industry to actually to, to drive this. Uh, otherwise, we, we will, uh, I pointed out before, otherwise we will have a decision making that is actually not in our favor and and uh, i think i think from uh, well uh, fr from from stena's point of view stena balis point of view we we are definitely led to explore all different ways to to try to come up with solutions uh, and and uh, also trying it together with with partners and 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 uh, customers uh, and uh, well, what is the right way to go ahead uh, it is definitely again there's a big question mark around that but uh, uh, as, as Nikos was uh, mentioning here, uh, I, I more or less repeat that, you know, we, of course it is, uh, it is uh, we are looking for pathways now, I think, pathways to, to go to, to uh, zero carbon emissions and also other emissions, of course, that, that is actually uh, dangerous for the environment. Uh, and uh, well, for us, methanol has definitely been one of the, one of the hottest topics uh, the last uh, couple of years. Uh, something that we know is working very well, uh, and and uh, uh, it's a pretty interesting development of of, of that uh, commodity as well. Uh, and uh, it is a clean can be clean in in many ways, uh, and it's not only about the CO2. Then it's uh, it's about the NOx and the SOx and, and the particles as well, which is very very interesting, I think. Uh, and aside from that, of course, uh, I mean other other uh, energy carriers. Uh, what it comes down, down to at the end of the day is, is of course, how they're produced. Uh, and we, we know that, uh, you know, uh, methanol can be produced with, uh, uh, in a way, so it's CO2 neutral with e-methanol and the same with ammonia. Uh, and, and, of course, uh, uh, something that, well, maybe it has been, uh, uh, you know, we have not been traveling that much the last you know, 65 days and maybe we are missing out on something here because it's not, at least in my word, it's not so much discussion about it, but uh, uh, the carbon capture uh, and, and the cleaning of the, of, the, of, of the emissions coming out, uh, what, what can be done there? And it might, I might actually, together with what Mike said about the energy efficiency here, uh, you know, in combination, maybe we can reach very, very far with those two items as well. Uh, so uh, it, it is definitely not, I'm sorry, not an answer to your question, but uh, just to to emphasize that it's a very complex question. And, uh, and I think, uh, uh, again, here, uh, cooperation uh, with, within and outside the industry is, is uh, for sure the most important part here to reach the, the goal we are all heading for. 
Thank you very much, Eric. And uh, I picked up on your choice of the phrase uh, pathway, and I think that's uh, quite a, a critical one. So, uh, Kenneth, turning to you now, um, any additional insights or any viewpoints that you would like to share with us on this uh, question, please? Yeah, I, I very much agree with the themes. And I was actually thinking, Knut, that I think you should make the commitment right now for all of us to mark our calendars for 15th of April uh, 2031 uh, to, to come back and, and debate this question. Uh, because really what we're debating right now is, is that transitioning where all of us are leaning into uh, the discussion in a much bigger way than I think any of us collectively have, have, have ever done in, in our industry. And the reality is that we don't know uh, for certain which fuels that eventually is, is gonna get the industry to zero emissions. And I think uh, Bart said it well. I mean, you also realize that um, it's, it's not a, a, a one size uh, fits all here. And even as, as individual companies, I mean, it's clear from our diverse group here that we come at it from, uh, Mikhail touched on it, Eric touched on it, uh, Nico touched on it, everybody touches on it, that it's a diff different decision for different uh, type of segment. And even within TK, uh, we, we see that, I mean, I. I arrive at a different, I have very different discussions with each of our businesses and, and the conclusions are different. Uh, so our LNG fleet obviously runs on, on LNG and, and uh, we expect that to continue. And uh, when I look at our total uh, group uh, footprint today, we have 60% of our group wide fuel consumption, that's, that's LNG. Uh, and of course it's not zero carbon, we all know that, but it does provide that a uh, 20% reduction or so. I saw some, some numbers today which suggested higher, but, but in, in that bracket, right, compared to fuel oil. And I think the other part that LNG actually does is that it, it does actually create a pathway. Uh, so if, if there are zero carbon solutions such as biogas or synthetic LNG uh, that, that becomes more available and common and commercial, well, then we have the infrastructure uh, to really use LNG. So, so absent uh, the, the, the big ammonia solution yet, I, I, I do think that it's a, it's a very, very good uh, transition uh, uh, fuel. But then at the same time, uh, we also, uh, as, as you're all aware, we, we have a 50% joint venture with, with Exmar and we carry a lot of ammonia. Uh, and uh, then we have a medium and MGC LPG fleet that carries ammonia. And of course, uh, again, you're looking at a segment where it makes a lot of sense to uh, a burn uh, LPG when, when, we, when we have that in the tanks. But if there's any place in the world where it would make sense to try out the first ammonia engine, which by the way, isn't ready, um, then of course it would, should be in an ammonia carrier. That's the only place in my mind that, that it makes sense. It has to be backed by a a long contract and it has to be, um, it, it, but, but it only makes sense there because the, the sheer infrastructure of the bunkering is just a, a, a gigantic task as we've seen on, on LNG. And, and that brings me to, to our tanker fleet because we, and, and we've been discussing LNG in, in crude oil tankers for, for, for decades, right? I, I had these discussions when we, when we had a shuttle tanker fleet uh, 15 years ago, and, and we couldn't get it over the hurdle. We could make uh, technical sense of it, and we we could almost make commercial sense of it, but we just couldn't get stakeholders to 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 participate. Um, and I think that's the reality, even on, on crude oil tankers uh, today. Uh, I agree; it, it it does make sense uh, to use LNG in, uh, in in contracts for that are backed by a long-term charter. But uh, making the decision for 
a smaller vessel, which I think Mikael touched on as well, that's that's tramping or 100% in the spot market. Uh, we don't we don't see the stars aligning there uh, just yet. So that's a that's a bigger hurdle, and 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 that's where you then start leaning into well the dual fuel. You'll buy the option, and uh, and and you better hope that you're going to use that option. Otherwise, you're you're carrying a lot of uh, excess capital around that you need to make a return on, right? So. So, so I think that's that's really the uh, the the, uh, the 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 bottom uh, line to here. I, I think the, the other question is, of course, when will we start using zero carbon fuels? And we we just expect that that transition will will take take time. And uh, and and it, there, there's so much of the infrastructure. If you look at what happened on LNG and how long time it's taken us to to build it out, we've had uh, many decades of building the experience of burning LNG in in, in our engines. Uh, but but it's it's for the past decade at least we've we've had just a build out of infrastructure. So before we can make the investments and the decisions to order an ammonia ready fuel, you want to have some certainty that that the infrastructure is is there. And as I think Esten as well pointed out, I mean the investments there are, are simply simply massive. So I think the reality is that for the next decade, uh, many of us are, are definitely leaning in a lot more than. Uh, we've, we've ever done in, in terms of trying to create optionality, try and drive new, better solutions forward. But I really believe that we should meet again in 10 years time and, and, and uh, continue this uh, debate. That's a great uh, invite, uh, Kenneth. I, and it will be my first, um, you know, appointment for the year of 2031. <laughs> but I'm quite happy to put it in. Uh, and just a reflection, very quick, on from my side. I, I think we we developed the first um, uh, LNG as fuel rules back in 2001, which leaves us uh, roughly 20 years to to where we are today. So it just uh, tells us something about the time it takes to to develop these things from from the early start. Uh, now I would like to shift uh, a little bit focus and turn a, a bit more onto the regulation side of things. And um, if I could start with you, Mikael, on this next question, please. So uh, we've seen recently that the decarbonization ambitions of several governments across the globe are ramping up with uh, shipping forming part of this uh, ambition. And amongst others, we've seen China, Japan, the European Union, they're all pushing for a quicker transition to a zero carbon future. And as ship owners, how concerned are you um, on the prospect that the IMO's decarbonization timeline might be outpaced by regional regulators and whether this might influence the IMO to bring forward its own decarbonization deadline. So please have a go with that, Mike. Yes, so thanks for that. Uh, obviously, one of the, uh, I think, one of the most key questions these days and, and, you know, as far as we see it, obviously, IMO is the global regulator for the industry, but I think it's, it's correct, as you stated, that uh, they have come under enormous pressure from regional uh, governments, uh, groups, et cetera, that are pushing for a quicker action on these things. Um, and I think, you know, as far as, at least as we're concerned here, this is just a political reality that comes out of uh, too slow reactions, uh, too slow in terms of understanding where the world is moving and where our surroundings are moving. And when you do that, there is always the risk that you're going to get regulated uh, on a regional basis versus a global basis. So I think, 
you know, where we are today, I think that is a political reality. So there will be regional uh, regulation on this. Uh, the latest we've seen and debated is the EU ETS scheme, which obviously is now coming up for discussion here this summer, I think is one very good example of that. Uh, I do believe still that, that you know, you talk about uh, China, et cetera, also pushing around these things. I think you will see that, that, that things have to be carefully designed when we talk about the EU ETS scheme before things are being implemented. And, you know, I think as an industry, we have two choices. You know, we can just say, well, it is what it is and stay outside, or we can move inside the room and try to make sure that what comes out of these debates and these discussions is actually something that we can live with, for lack of better words. I don't think uh, that by any means that we're able to stop these current developments, and neither do I think we should. I think we should try to be constructive in that discussion. Uh, and just to give one example, I mean, I was just reading in the paper today, there's obviously a lot of of discussions around this uh, annual efficiency ratio, AER, that is now being debated because basically it's, it focuses on the date weight of a ship versus the actual cargo carried. And I think this is a very good example of something which starts as a reporting thing, is not being properly addressed by the industry. And before you know it, it suddenly turned into part of a system that we now all have to live with. Uh, and, you know, again, it's not to point fingers at anyone, but I think it is a very good example of if you're not close and inside discussing, debating, trying to be constructive, things like this can happen. And we're now stuck with, with something in the system that we all know is going to be really difficult to manage and, and to work around. So uh, I think this is one part of it. Um, you know, I think the... When we go a little bit forward and, 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 and see about the technical issues that are coming up now in terms of 2023 and the EEXI, I think when it comes to the global regulation part, we also, and we should probably all try to focus a little bit on this, is there has been a tendency, I, I feel, of uh, the talk about renewables, the talk about the future infrastructure, blurring a little bit the status quo and, and the situation we're in now. Uh, I feel that it, it's probably also super important, and I think, Espen, you also mentioned it in the beginning, that we start getting a common language and a common, uh, common standards for when we talk about the environment and we talk about the various initiatives. What do they actually mean? And are we all comfortable that we understand the conclusions and the way they lead? Right now, I think it's become a bit of an overbidding process that everyone is trying to make themselves look as green as possible. But in reality, what we should be doing is looking at these two paths and focus on regulation on the long term, which is more a cooperation between industry, society, governmentals, etc. But then also make sure that on the short term basis that we actually start focusing on what can we do with our existing assets. I don't think we want here in, in any form of regulatory environment to shorten the life cycle of the current assets uh, and then throw in a lot of new bills to replace them. That's not an environmentally friendly strategy. So I think the right focus is to split the two paths and get more focus on what we can do today on the assets we have by investing in smarter technologies to analyze our data, focus on new technologies for existing propulsion, and continue to push that development as well. But it does require that we are in the rooms and we are 
you know, ready to negotiate and participate in constructive uh, discussions. So I think that's probably what, what, what I find is the most important thing is, this, is that I'm concerned that the renewable discussion in a way overshadows what we can do here and now, and we should start focusing a bit on that as well. Great viewpoints, and uh, and it does bring back uh, sort of Espen's opening, um, say, remarks about the dialogue with with the authorities and the regulators in, in a really good way. Uh, John, if I could come to you now, um, what would be your take on this, please? Michael, I think said it um, very well. <laughs> we, the, I, my take is also that there there are two things here that are are. Um, uh, separate. One is the efficiency, and all the um, happily efficiency equals um, uh, reduction of pollution, as well as all sorts of pollution, as well as um, but adding to your bottom line. So there, there's happily not a contradiction between between you know investing in in um, data collection and mining and processing, which we have this incredible ability now to be able to do. Um, and and um, improved hull designs, um, um, shaft generator, things that, that we can deal with immediately and, and will both reduce the, the impact of our, um, uh, so it's not, ju I, I'm not just what, what comes out of the main engine, it's also, you know, that you can, uh, with with efficiencies, um, reduce the whole footprint. So I, I'm, um, uh, we are we are very much focusing on that side of things, um, and and um, and uh, on the regulation side. However, I think that we have for too long been um, the 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 industry of of um, reaction and resistance. Yeah. We've been waiting for things to happen before we have any influence in how they happen. And unfortunately, I should say that in, in a current environment, in this question includes, I see the EU, but, um, um, but it ha you haven't mentioned the US. And the US has a nasty habit of coming in late and leapfrogging, and God knows what's going to come up. You know, we have the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. And at the moment, we still, we know the unknown unknowns of what the EU is talking about. The unknown unknowns is what they're gonna come up with over here. So, so I think we got a lot of challenge and we should, and, and in spite of the fact I fully respect what Nicholas is saying, and you know, it's all well and good being told that, that LNG is a no brainer fuel when nobody is guaranteeing me the price of the LNG going forward. So for me, there are no no-brainers. And I think it is, there is an absolute requirement for all of us to try and involve ourselves at all stages in the regulation process so that we can, we can at least um, use whatever influence we have to make sure that we're not, we're not just reacting you know, to the latest accident and providing politicians with some fodder so they can say, um, there you are, you see, we mandated this uh, um so uh, that's <laughs> that's my take on it 
Thank you very much, John. Great, um, great contribution. And, and I would really like to come back to you now, Espen, because uh, I mean, in, in your opening <laughs> remarks, you, you, you mentioned what both uh, Mikael and John reiterated now, and I, I think we also heard it before. Uh, maybe you have some views on this uh, specific question in addition, please. I, I do. And I once again would like to uh, agree with John that historically, uh, we as an industry have been reactive, um, reactive, and we're trying very hard to catch up, but we've got a hell of a long way to catch up and a very short time in which to do it. Um, and IC, ICS was founded in 1921, so we're 100 years old in November this year. In other words, we're older than the IMO. And we have traditionally been the I think one of the main voices of the industry at IMO. But I mean, our secretariat is 25 people of uh, a very high caliber of people, very, very hardworking. They're at IMO virtually every day. Uh, but if you take last year, for example, it was largely a lost year because uh, it, to begin with, IMO didn't want to have virtual meetings. And so a lot of time was lost through uh, the inability to, to have meetings. So again, we're trying to catch up. And I, you know, I, I, I think that the IMO is the obvious, the obvious best way to regulate our, our global industry in a global way. But the fact of the matter is that um, whether it's California or the EU or, or other states, China, etc., some of them are simply losing patience with the, with the pace of getting things done. When you've got 170 countries sitting around uh, many small nations with political agendas, it is very, very difficult to get things done. And, and, and I, I don't want to, to, to minimize it, but, but the fact of the matter is so often things are simply lost in translation. People just who take the decisions are not qualified to take the decisions. And very often we as ICS, you know, we consult countries and we try and give them, you know, the industry perspective and explain as carefully as we can, but very often we're talking to people who are, are really not equipped or, or to, 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 to take the decisions. And so this is why uh, you got an ETS uh, idea from, from the EU, because the EU is becoming impatient. And so the fear is always that you will get regional regulation. From an Asian perspective, I sit in Asia and I hear this all the time. The ECS in Europe is just a money-raising exercise, and why should we be penalized for voyages that are 80% nothing to do with the EU? We may pass uh, discharge or load in an EU country in our, in our transitory trip uh, voyage somewhere else. And, you know, so this is, this is the perception of it. How it will all play out, I don't know, but I would still say that the IMO is the best way, um, and if we need to improve the IMO, I would hope that somehow or other we can. I can only say that from an ICS perspective, we do everything we can and we coordinate with our 38 member national associations as best we can, but it is a, um, it is a, a massive task. You've got IATA, they have 10 offices around the world with staff into the thousands. We have 25 people. So, you know, it, it's not to make excuses, but it, it, is a, it is a very tall order. And I, but I believe that as has already been said, uh, there is now a certain momentum. And somehow or other, uh, I think that IMO are going to understand and realize that we are very serious about this. Thank you, Espen. And um, 
I can only reinforce that uh, what was also said uh, earlier in the discussions that it, it, it is really important that it is the IMO that uh, is regulating uh, global shipping and, uh, and we all need to try and do our best to make that happen, that's, uh, that's for sure. Um, uh, expanding a little bit on this, so uh, if you look to, you know, can regulation support shipping on its journey to zero and, and what mechanisms will incentivize ship owners to be first movers towards uh, this goal? And if I could come to you, Eric, for this question first, please. Sure. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it is, uh, of course, the most important thing here, again, you know, is, is that we have we have uh, global regulations and, and not regional. And uh, I mean, that has been emphasized here a number of times. So I think that's definitely uh, an agreeable, agreeable item here. Uh, and and uh, of course, also that uh, has been touched on uh, is for sure the, that we need to be, the industry need, uh, as Espen pointed out, we need to be ahead of, of the regulators. And uh, by that, you know, try to, by that, uh, you know, force uh, our our opinion and our way into uh, the decision making here. Uh, and what kind of mechanism should be put in place for that? I mean, I'm sure there are several different ideas around that, but uh, I, I think uh, uh, that uh, the mechanism they have to put in place should be make sure that it supports alternative energy solutions uh, through. Uh, global fee structure, uh, and uh, or we can call it tax or whatever, uh, and uh, it should then depend on uh, the content of emissions that are released uh, or released from the ship. So we are all, you know, uh, playing in the, in the same same uh, same game room, so to say. Uh, and uh, and of course, the, then we come down to the, how that should be calculated and uh, and and. Uh, what kind of investments you need to take. And we, I mean, I guess a ship owner today, if they want to invest in something new, they want a quite quick, quick uh, payback time on it because we never know what happens in five, six years from now. So, so I, think, I think that is also very important to consider in this, uh, in this challenge to take care of those. Uh, well, if you're going to be the first mover, you know, you definitely need a a solution that that uh, have a quick, relatively quick payback time as well. Uh, and uh, I mean, uh, uh, you know, it, it is uh, also, you know, we have to make sure that, uh, I mean, the world, world is uh, is catching up very quick around us. And, uh, and uh, I mean, shipping is, I would say, traditionally uh, quite conservative. Uh, and, and by that, you know, we we need to again here work work with the regulators uh, regulators around us uh, that are also well uh, the knowledge can be limited for sure as as has been pointed out uh, but also you know decision making can be very fast in in in, uh, in something they don't know and and by that you know it's it is again here very important to to work with this and and find good solutions and uh, and I think I mean. Coming down to the point there, I think global fee structure uh, that is definitely supporting uh, each and every uh, ways you can you can run the ship in in a proper way is uh, probably the way forward here to move to move uh, move ahead. Thank you very much, uh, Eric. And um, if I could, um, you know, have a couple of quick uh, comments from uh, first you, Kenneth, and then uh, uh, Nico, if you would be so kind to follow after Kenneth, please. Thank you. 
Uh, thanks, Knut. I, I, I certainly agree with, with, with Eric and, and also what was said on, on the last question. Uh, regulation has a, a role to play. Uh, it isn't the only solution, but I think it is uh, clear that we need regulation to, to create the right incentives for owners and stakeholders just to invest in new fuels and technologies to, to reduce emissions. So, so that's, that's, that's that part of, of, of the question. And, and ultimately, I think market-based measures uh, to put a, a price on carbon uh, will be needed uh, in, in one form or another to reach uh, net zero, uh, which, which I, I really think is the key question around this uh, uh, here. And, uh, and I, I think reflecting on a bit on the role of, of IMO and, and the standards that we're setting, I mean, the, the, the technical standards that we're setting, such as the EEGI and EEXI are, are of course useful uh, to, for establishing minimum common performance across the industry. Uh, but, but these types of rules don't really uh, certainly fully incentivize um, uh, first movers uh, to, to go in and make uh, big investments in new technologies. Uh, there are certain uh, challenges, of course, to, to uh, implementing uh, global market-based mechanisms. And, and I agree with Eric that uh, they have, it has to be the same playing field for, for everybody. Otherwise, in, in, a, in a global industry, this becomes uh, very, very difficult. But I'm also of the view that without a price on, on, on carbon, I think the investments needed to reduce emissions across the industry will, will, uh, will, will probably not happen. Uh, so I guess the last perspective on it is really that, uh, and this has been going on in our industry for, for many years, we, uh, to, to incentivize change, you, you can use uh, uh, carrots or you can use sticks, right? And uh, greenhouse uh, gas regulatory discussions in, in our industry, uh, certainly for the past 15 years or so, have, have almost uh, exclusively confined us to discussing various types of, of sticks. And um, I think if, if change is going to happen fast, we really need to start discussing as well, how do we create uh, the right incentives to attract the much needed capital uh, for, for this uh, huge change, right? We can't just use the, the, the stakes here and penalize uh, ship owners and take on another another tax that will pass through to, to our customers. Yeah, we, we need some, some really thinking in the incentive uh, terms uh, so that we can attract the capital into, into this uh, sector and, 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 and make the change. Thank you, Kenneth. Believe it or not, the time is really flying. Um, uh, Nico, could I have uh, some quick comments uh, from you, please? Yes, no, well, you know, I agree with uh, with Kenneth that we need a le level playing field here. Uh, regulations, though, should uh, not be implemented before uh, they can be. I mean, they, they should not be passed before they can be practically implemented. And, and the problem uh, sometimes when you deal with politicians is uh, that uh, they decide to, for industries like ours that are, we are a fragmented industry. And all you have to do is look around this panel and see where we are all, all over the world and none of us is really you know, on a focus point on some sort of, uh, of, of uh, you know, pressure group anywhere. <laughs> around where decisions are, are, are taken. And we could have a similar example that regulations could be decided and that would be very, very hard or impossible again uh, to implement. And we will end up being again the guinea pigs uh, of, uh, of having to test uh, various <laughs> ways to, to achieve this. So we have to participate this time. You know, I think you said very rightly that the IMO should maintain its predominance as being a regulated, regulatory body 
and we have to support it. Also, I think there is going to be, other than the regulations, market pressure. There will be all, you know, clients of ours that will pressure us. And that's, that's the business. I'm not criticizing this. In, in ways to take to, to take a step further in order for us to get, get uh, you know the business or get the, get the rate. So I think a combination of that uh, will uh, will take us to to the next step. But uh, we still have uh, some time uh, in order to be able to say that we have find found a solution for uh, 2030 to 2050. I think we're, we're not there yet. Thank you, Nico. Great uh, input. Uh, let me now, we have uh, roughly five minutes left of this uh, panel, and um, I would like to, you know, come uh, to what was also discussed in another Capital Link uh, panel discussion earlier today, and that was the, the topic of advanced atomic solutions for ocean transport. Uh, and um, what carbon-free potential do you all see in atomic energy, either as a a direct onboard fuel source or as a production method for green fuels like for instance green hydrogen or green ammonia and I would like to go you know a quick round the table on this in, in the last five minutes or so maybe Mikael I can I can start with you and then we just uh, go around the table please. Here we go. Yes, so uh, I mean, I, I'll try to be fast on that, right? I think it's, uh, I think my main view on things like this is that we should not narrow ourselves in terms of looking at alternatives that can help us reach the goals that we have set out to do. I'm, I'm very much a believer in, uh, in trying to have an open mind to whatever solutions until they have been probably researched, probably addressed. And, and probably concluded upon, because as it's been said so many times in this panel, there are a huge amount of challenges on all these different solutions that we're looking at. And I think as an industry, we'll do ourselves a big favor of not being too prejudiced uh, in terms of this uh, and, and try to look at nuclear as an alternative with, I think, a lot of pros, uh, certainly also a lot of cons and one of them being of course that there is a historical legacy around it that that you know we can't ignore because it, it takes up a lot of 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 space if you like in the public opinion but i'm definitely in favor of, of adding it to potential solutions going forward without in any form and shape committing to this being an ultimate solution thank you that's very clear michael um john could i come to you please for a quick comment yeah um I, I, I think, again, going back to the vaccines, we, you, you, the, two, the two most successful so far, the quickest to market and the most reliable so far, uh, vaccines are new technology. So I think that should tell us something about, you know, going forward for us too. We should not close our, our ears to and eyes to um, anything. And the prejudices that we have against uh, nuclear are, are related to old technology. The, what we're talking about now is not what they were talking about. What, it's not the existing um, technology that is being deployed in big nuclear power stations, and et cetera. There's, there's the molten sulfur containment and, and the, the cooling, and, and, uh, which are providing um, uh, uh, the opportunity, I think, for nuclear to, to become a bit of a silver bullet. Nothing is 
nothing is a no-brainer and nothing is a, a total solution, but I think it should be part of our solution. I think um, Bud, who we discussed this previously with, and it has a lot of experience in this area, and it was is a, quite a skeptic, will, will kind of probably correct me, but, but um, coming from, from uh, uh, my side, I, I feel that, that it should, nuclear should form part of our, our um, arsenal of solutions here. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Maybe we could go to, to you then, but and, and hear your views, please. Yeah, with all due respect, John, I'm pleased to correct you a little bit because um, I am a skeptic on adapting pressurized water reactors, which was the traditional propulsion source for uh, nuclear naval ships to the merchant fleet. But I'm a big believer in we shouldn't be bound by the conventional notions of what propulsion looks like or what fuel looks like or even what a ship looks like for the future. We've got some big sky thinking that has to be done. I think we need to have an open mind. So I, I did start my career as a naval nuclear engineer, and I was a skeptic on adapting that technology, as, as John correctly pointed out. But this technology is different, as John also pointed out. I mean, this is bears very little resemblance to the actual type of plant and some of the drawbacks that came with that from a technical perspective. I think there's still some major policy hurdles that have to be overcome, but there are with some of these other fuels as well. And I think we should have an open mind. I think this is one of the things we should be actively talking about and thinking about because a molten salt reactor is a very different animal than a pressurized water reactor. And um, certainly we need good ideas. Thank you, but Eric, please. Yes, okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, I can. What has not been brought up here in this conversation is, of course, uh, I mean, now we're talking about the ships, uh, but uh, I think also we have to find ways to to produce the 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 fuels where where we have an alternatives like methanol, ammonia, and so on. And uh, why not use uh, why not use uh, nuclear power for that? Uh, I think that's my my add to it, so to say. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Great, great point. Uh, Kenneth, please. Share all the views. I think we need to keep an open mind. This, this technology is, is different, looks promising, but I also think that uh, any development of that should start on land before we start marinizing uh, these molten reactors. And uh, therefore, a path is exactly as, as, as Eric points out, that maybe it is a good source to, to produce uh, uh, frankly fuels that we can then use in, in, in ships. But uh, we can continue this, this discussion when we meet again in, in 10 years' time. Very good. Uh, Espen, please go ahead. Yeah, this is uh, something on which, to say the least, I'm not an expert, but I, I, I noticed that a year ago we never heard anything about this particular technology. <clears throat> Today it has suddenly become an option, and so it, so it should. Um, I watched a Bill Gates program wherein he said the problem is people don't seem to realize that nuclear was designed by a slide rule 30, 40 years ago. And today that is of course not the case. It's completely, totally different. I, I know a number of extremely clever people who have invested in, 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 this, uh, in this idea and, and it's R&D and development. Uh, and um, although there's no conclusion, um, they are investing in it. And, and, and I think as time goes by, this will, will likely emerge as, as a more serious option than it is today. Thank you, Espen. And um, uh, last but not least, uh, Nico, please uh, have a go at this one. 
I believe you are still muted, uh, Nico. I said that I think I will leave this to my grandson to deal with that uh, part of the... Because I'm still trying to put my head around the ammonia and the hydrogen, the battery cells, and uh, uh, and perhaps going back to basics is the safest thing, going back to wind and uh, do what our uh, great-grandparents and grandparents used to do, uh, go to that. Uh, yeah, I'm sure we, we can look at all options, but as I said, I don't want this to be uh, my, you know, the ship owner's decision what to do. I think that uh, this is uh, something, it's, it's, it's a whole chain that will make the world go round for the next 50 years. And, uh, you know, we are an important part of it, but uh, we should not be in the forefront of that because, uh, uh, you know, we should put an energy of actually running a safe ship rather uh, than uh, envisioning uh, all this idea. Thank you very much, Nico. Running a safe ship is, after all, uh, the primary concern. And um, uh, I will in no way try to sort of summarize this panel discussion, but I think on, on the last question, at least we can say that uh, as uh, ship owners, you are uh, keeping an open eye to the different options that are out there and that you are looking at flexibility and uh, with that i would like to thank you so much for your time your insights and uh, not least for for sharing all the different views that you've expressed during this panel discussion and uh, i'm really grateful that you took part in this and i really enjoyed moderating you and uh, with that I, I i thank you all and i would like to hand it back to you nicholas thank you very much well, I would like to, to thank you all, obviously. Uh, Knut, uh, thank you for moderating so expertly uh, this panel. Thank you, Esben, Kenneth, uh, Michael, John, Nicholas, Eric, and, and uh, Bud. Thank you very much. This panel, frankly, getting 90 minutes out of busy people like yourselves is a great accomplishment. And I think this particular discussion has been, of course, insightful, but above all, it has been authoritative and directive because everything, all the opinions that you expressed uh, are vitally important. Uh, we had robust attendance uh, that remained during the, the panel indicative of uh, the interest that people had in listening to your opinions. And I'm absolutely sure that we are going to get uh, tremendous uh, visitations of the replays when we put it on YouTube. Uh, thank you for what you're doing for the industry. Thank you for uh, sharing your vision and your uh, insight today. And uh, this concludes uh, our forum. Uh, it's been, I have to tell you that um, when we started this decarbonization forum, it's a topic that is so discussed and we were trying to come up with, uh, with angles to make it different, to make it valuable, and it has surpassed our expectations. And I would like to thank you all. And of course, I'd like to thank uh, our steering committee uh, for their help. Again, thank you. And we can call it- Thank you to Knut thank for you. keeping us all in line. Thank you. <laughs> thank you all. Stay thank safe. You. Thank you, Nicholas. All the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. All the best.